right, there you are. In all your beautiful glory there, Lionel. <laughs> I like your your logo in the back. That looks very nice. I like that. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm, I'm the Cosmic Cowboy because, um, well, I really haven't figured out. <laughs> well, I know why it is because I got a hat. It's a Stetson, and that's the first criteria. Yeah. And then, uh, of course, we always talk about things that seem to be out there, so why not? The Cosmic really kind of fit. But, man, speaking of being, yeah. speaking of being out there, Lionel, uh, man, yeah. uh, near-death experiences and uh, UFO and strange encounters, and uh, you've had extraordinary life. I don't want to say have. You are having an extraordinary life. But some strange things have happened to you and changed your view of life, I understand, from what I've been reading about you. So let's go back a little bit and tell us wh wh what you're about and kind of introduce yourself to our audience. Okay, so um, I grew up uh, in South Africa during the apartheid era. Um, I was a kid, and um, and uh, I was exposed to apartheid you know, from a very young age because it was around you. It was, it was everywhere. And um, my father was an immigrant to South Africa from 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 Latvia, and uh, he found the apartheid system, you know, pretty ab abhorrent, which which it was. Uh, there's no question of that. My mother was born in South Africa, and I was an only child. And you know, uh, after uh, many many years, my, my dad eventually said, you know, um, it's enough of living under this this uh, these conditions. Um, I'm, I'm I'm I it's time it's time to leave the country. But but where do you go? And my father was by trade a watchmaker. The days when they used to repair watches, mechanical watches, you know, when when people wore real watches, not electronic stuff. Mm -hmm. So you know, he was his life was all about fitting little cogs and gears and wheels and things. And he took a job as a watchmaker and a manager of a tiny little jewelry store way up in Central Africa. And uh, I had just finished my 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 schooling, um, finished high school. And um, when they decided to leave the country, you know, I said to my folks, I, I want to go with you. But my mother said, no, you're not. You're staying here and you're going to go to college and you're going to get yourself a degree. Um, but I had always, more than anything else in the world, I always wanted to make movies. Um, when they moved up to Central Africa, for me, that was like a dream come true because I had gone to see all the Tarzan movies at the local movie house in the little town where I grew up and, you know, I was exposed to people don't probably don't even remember these films, things like the African queen, King Solomon's mines, all that kind of stuff. I saw all those movies and I wanted to make films like that mm -hmm. uh, with a dream of eventually ending up in Hollywood. And so I said to them, no, I, you know, I'm coming with you guys. And, um, which I did. And so I followed them up there. And, uh, when I got to where my dad was, uh, took this job, I suddenly looked around me and there was nothing except there were copper mines, which is why this little store was up there in a little town, and nothing else. And I thought, what have I done? You know, what is here for me to do? Um, the road to Hollywood doesn't start here in the middle of the Central African jungle. How am I ever going to realize my dreams? <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Um, and so, you know, like manna from heaven, magic things happened. You know, somebody was looking after me. Because one day I, I saw a little tiny ad in the local newspaper about a television station that was opening up. It was it was it was owned by a British company, and they were starting a little tiny TV studio to serve the copper mining community. And I thought, oh my word, this is this is what I want. This is what I want to do. And uh, I went knocking at the door, and you know, and they said, you know, all the major positions have been filled by people coming mainly from the United Kingdom, from London, and wherever else. 
you know, we'll see if we can fit you in somewhere. And I said, I don't care what it is. I'll, I'll sweep the floors. I'll wash the windows. I'll do whatever you want. Just let me in, which they did. And so that was my start, the start of my career. Um, I, I started working in the props department, uh, you know, taking care of, you know, props that were used for live shows. Uh, it was a very tiny station. Um, and after about six months of that, I went to the studio manager and I said, you've got to allow me a chance to get behind one of those cameras. And he was a nice enough guy, an ex-British Army uh, captain, by the way. That's, that's His previous career was that before he became manager of the station. He said, All right, I'll put you behind the camera. You can do some. You can, you can do a trial on some of the um, educational broadcasts that we do in the morning, mm-hmm. which I did. And because I had been making 8mm movies as an amateur since I was 11 years old back in South Africa, you know, high school sporting events, you know, my buddies' birthday parties, things like that, I was pretty good behind the camera. And they realized it. And so they said to me, okay, you got a job. You can go behind the camera. And uh, that's where my career began. And it was wonderful because in the mornings we had educational broadcasts. In the afternoons we had cultural programming is what they called it Hmm. for local tribal communities living Hmm. in the area Hmm. where people would arrive in truckloads, you know, with drums and grass skirts and beads and, you know, thump and drum and sing and dance in the studio. And at night... We had every American and British show that you guys saw here, we had there at night. Everything was on film. We were like a week behind the the rest of the world. So I lived in like this, you know, this multicultural world. And it was wonderful. And then one day in 1964, uh, the, the territory I'm talking about was called Northern Rhodesia, which was a British colony. And when Britain was giving up its empire and giving away all its colonies, In 1964, this territory called Northern Rhodesia became the Republic of Zambia. So it got its independence. And when that happened, we all got pink slips. You know, all of us white guys at the station, we got pink slips to say, you've done a great job. Thank you very much. But bye bye. In six months time, you're out of here. All of your positions that you guys uh, have are going to be filled by local people. Well, we understood that, that you know, we could understand their thinking. But my dilemma was, now what? <laughs> what do I do now? You know, and we had a guy working for us uh, at home, a black guy, of course, uh, from uh, from the Bemba ethnic group in Zambia. And he and I were were very good friends because he, he 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 wanted always to be a photographer. And so we spent a lot of time talking about cameras. And the next day after I got this little pink slip, I went to him and I said, David, you know, a terrible thing has happened. Um, I've been fired in six months time. I've got to leave the uh, uh, the station, the studio, but I may have to leave the country. And I don't really want to go back to South Africa because apartheid was still raging at the time. As we're talking about 1964 here. And I don't know what to do. And he said, I'll find you someone who can help you make up your mind what to do. And I thought, well, what, whatever it is you have in mind, I totally trust you. I have no idea what you have in mind, but okay, you're on. What do we do? So it comes along, you know, Thursday afternoon, whatever it was, the following week. There was David, our servant, and myself in my little beat-up VW Beetle bumping through the bush on a dirt road to a tiny, tiny village in the outskirts of a town called Andola. I had no idea what was in store for me. I had no idea what David had in mind, but I trusted the guy implicitly, you know. And we arrived in this little 
and this little hamlet of a place, this village, and he went to this little hut and he said, I think this is this is the place. And he went to this little this little you know tiny little hut with a single door and one window and he knocked on the door and this ancient little old lady arrived in a hover you know, bent over <laughs> like this. <laughs> she opened the door and she with her bony finger she welcomed us into her her hut. Mm. You know, she was also a bembo woman. She spoke no English at all. And I thought, what on earth, you know, is this woman going to do for me? You know, what is this all about? But, you know, I put my hand in trust. I, 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 just, I just felt that something might happen that day, and something sure did, because we went inside her little hut, and she said to she, she, she was talking in, in Bemba, David was translating, and she told us to sit down on the floor, and there was a little grass mat on the floor, and on the grass mat was a little bag, an, an animal skin bag. Mm-hmm. And she told me to pick up the bag, blow into it, say my name, turn the bag upside down, which I did. And what fell out were a bunch of bones, little tiny bones the size of chicken bones. Wow. And a few other things, and a couple of dice, maybe a marble or two, and a bottle top, a couple of pebbles. These were the tools that this woman used because she was a shaman. And she read the bones for me. The way these things fell on the mat had a message for her. And she was translating for me what she was seeing in this pattern of bones and stuff lying on the mat. She basically told me, through David, through the interpreter, every single thing that came true for the next 60 years. She predicted almost my entire life. And I suddenly realized there and then that day, you know, that the world as we know it is not as it seems at all. And it, nothing, it was proven to me that day in this little old lady's hut because she foresaw events that there's no way she could have known anything about. Um, uh, you know, she said to me, she said to David things like, he must be very, very careful because one day he's going to go across the big water and he's going to go in that direction. And she points to the north. And she said, and when he gets to the other side of the water, he's going to do more of the kind of work he's doing now. But there are big lights there, big lights. She was talking about Hollywood. She foresaw the studios of Hollywood. She said to him, uh, she said to David, she said, uh, tell him to be very careful. But one day in his work, he's going to be also on the big water. And, and that water is almost going to kill him because the thing that he's on, is going to almost be destroyed. I have no idea what she was talking about. And years and years and years later, I was on a research ship in the Southern Ocean, and we almost capsized at sea. And it was only when it happened that I suddenly realized, oh, my God, that's what that woman foresaw. Mm-hmm. You know, she everything that she told me, she told me that I would be married twice. She told me how many kids I would have. Everything came true, everything. And one of the most amazing things, Daniel, that she told me, which 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 I had no understanding of at the time, was she said to David, she said, tell him that one day he's going to meet a man who was very, very close to the most evil man who ever lived. I had no idea what she meant. So cut 20 years into the future, and now we're talking about the mid-80s, and I'm doing a series of television shows on the history of aviation in, in, in Africa, in South Africa, the story of mm-hmm. South African Airways. And in, in our research, we found out that in the 1930s, this airline had bought aircraft from a 
a German company, the Junkers Aircraft Company. They no longer make commercial airliners today, but those days they did, back in the 30s. And they ordered three new, or I think five new airliners from this particular company. They were very much like the like the uh, the American Ford Trimotor, you know, with a, an engine in the nose and one on each wing. Mm-hmm. They were metal-skinned airplanes, which were radically new for their time. And these planes were flown all the way down from Germany to South Africa, down the length of Africa. Now, that's a big deal in the 1930s. No meteorological services, no weather forecasts, no airports to stop on the way in case you have technical problems. It was a major expedition to do that. And one of the pilots uh, who actually flew one of these delivery flights, we learned that this guy was still alive. And the minute I heard this, I thought, wow, you know, we've got to interview him. He's got to be in this show. So uh, (laughs) together with the foreign office of the German government, we tracked him down. And we found him uh, that he was retired. He was like 89 years old or something at the time. He was retired in a little tiny town near Munich. And uh, so we went to go and interview him. And um, the night before I did the interview, we had a fairly big crew. We had, you know, two vans with crew photographers and whatever else. There was the guy from the the, the German foreign office was there, plus other folks uh, from the, the German aviation industry, because this man was very well known. And um, apparently, you know, he was he was well known for reasons that I didn't quite understand at the time, because the night before we did the interview, the guy from the foreign office, the German foreign office, he said, how much do you really know about this man? His name was Hans Bauer, B-A-U-R. How much do you really know about Kapitan Hans Bauer? You know, and I said, well, what else is there to know? You know, I know he did that delivery flight. That's all I want to know, you know, from him in this interview. Why? What else is there to know? And he, you know, sort of beckoned me closer to him. This is after about three good bottles of good Rhine wine at midnight, you know. And he says to me, he says, do you know that this man was Adolf Hitler's personal pilot? Well, when he told me that, I mean, you could have blown me over like a feather. I First of all, I sobered up instantly. And the next day when I met the guy, um, I wasn't quite sure how to deal with the interview because he was Adolf Hitler's personal pilot. Wow. That's that's a big deal. Yeah. You, know? you, you don't get to interview people like that every day. No. <laughs> so I did interview the guy and I was told, by the way, by the man from the from the from the German Foreign Office, uh, the um, don't discuss anything other than that delivery flight in the 30s. Do not discuss the Second World War, nothing. I said, no, I won't. Why, why would I? You know, it's not what I'm here for. That's not what the interview's about. But anyway, so we did the interview. The interview was good. The guy spoke only German, and this man was translating for me. Um, and at the end of the interview, Hans, uh, Kapitan Hans Bar, he stood up and he said to me, I want to show you something. And he, we get up, and he's speaking German to me. And we go to the end of the of this living room where we did the interview. You know, there are cables all over the place and lights and things. And where the where the living room ended, there was a little nook there be, with, to the bathroom. And on the wall there was a photograph. And in the photograph was one of these airplanes that we've been discussing in the interview. Mm-hmm. But in standing in front of the aircraft was him and Adolf Hitler. He Hans Bauer was wearing his uniform. And I suddenly realized, oh, my God, he was a member of the SS because he had the skull and crossbones on yes. the helmet. Mm. 
And he says to me in German, you know, this is me and that is, and I said, yeah, I know who that is. <laughs> and he said, would you like to know more? And I, and I said, yeah, you know, why not? And so he calls his wife and the wife brings all these photograph albums and he puts the albums down in, in front of me and we sit down on, on, on this couch in his living room. Um, and it's, it's a history of the Third Reich. Everybody who was anybody in Hitler's close-knit inner circle are in these photograph albums. And he is in many, many of these photographs. That's how close he was with Adolf Hitler. And in fact, he tells me he'd been married three times. His very first uh, wedding, when he had his first wedding in Munich, Adolf Hitler gave him his, his wedding party wow. in Adolf Hitler's apartment. That's how close he was to Adolf Hitler. So I spent the rest of the day being shown inside the inner workings of the Third Reich with this man. You know, and it, so that in itself is, 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 is quite a story. But as we were driving away, you know, at the end of the day, I eventually said to the crew, come on, let's, you know, let's get the cables all uh, wound up. Let's, let's, it's time to leave. It's like six o'clock in the evening. And as we were driving away, you know, I looked back through the rear window of this van and there he was outside his house, you know, waving goodbye to me with his wife next to him. It was like like an old couple saying goodbye to friends. And it suddenly hit me. Oh, my God. I have just shaken hands and spent a day with a man who was closer to Adolf Hitler than probably anybody else. Because Hitler trusted nobody. You know, there were many attempts on his life. But this guy, apparently, he trusted implicitly. He didn't doubt him at all. And it was only then that I suddenly realized... That's who that woman was talking about. How did she know that in a grass hut in Africa over 20 years ago, she foresaw this event? Hmm. That's just ti some tiny examples of what I'm talking about, of what went on in that little mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, mud hut of hers in the Central African sun mm -hmm. uh, years and years ago. Well, and Lionel, I, let, let me break in here because yeah. when you originally said how uh, – in, in the beginning that you sort of got kicked out of your what you were doing you didn't know what to do and so this yep. and that I've got a little bit of my life track is a little bit like that because in 2003 yeah uh, I walked into a radio station in Indianapolis and I said hey I got a I got an idea uh, for a for a show that's unlike anything that you guys have and yep. it'd be a call-in show uh -huh. and uh, the station manager and I said, I said, well, I said, if you give me two hours on Saturday night, I'll build you a website and I'll host it and I'll take care of it. I'll market your station. Yeah. And I was shocked. He said, okay. And about uh, two years later, uh, a uh, Hispanic broadcasting network brought this, bought that station and kicked all the English people out. Because I, I noticed when you said you got everybody got kicked out, I, I was kicked out. And I, what am I going to do? You know. So then I, I ended up. It was good anyway because I went to uh, streaming and then I added video and I had a bunch of things I couldn't do at the radio station. So I had a kind of, my life track kind of brought me that way too. But before we continue, let me recognize a couple people that's uh, uh, logged in. Uh, there in our live chat. In addition to what I've already announced, we have a Reload Skidmark, Tom Cat, Richard Argon, Max Vogan, DS Shot, Unlucky, Scotty, Life Station, and Mr. W. All welcome to the program. On our newsmaker line tonight, we do have uh, Lionel Friedberg, and we're talking about his life track and ancient mysteries and, and how he came um, to really have his life belief altered by v very mysterious things. And 
And uh, Lionel, we've already got questions coming in. We'll take a couple of those and we'll get back to your to your life track story too. This uh, this uh, is from Put Your Way First. It says Lionel, have you seen? Uh, no, I'm going to I'm going to butcher this. Uh, Maleki Mibambe in Africa. No, I have not, and I do not know who that is. All right, Rose says Lionel, what is a shaman? Are they sort of like witches, or is that a lie they create about the shamans? Well, that's an old white man's point of view, you know. That goes back to the early days of the movies, if you like. Uh, well, it, it goes before the movies. When, 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 when colonization was happening in Africa, you know, and people were settling Africa from Europe mainly, and they saw these people, you know, with bones and stones and predicting the future and foretelling people's uh, lives and 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 and, and, and diagnosing illnesses and all the rest of it. They they said, you know, these these are witches. And so they term they gave them the term witch doctor, mm-hmm. and that's how that stuck. So there are two sides to the story. Um, uh, in answer to this person's question, our concept w- uh, was up until recently, you know, that a witch doctor is the sort of person that I'm kind of talking about now. But really, it isn't anything to do with being a witch doctor. A shaman in Africa, and particularly in the areas where I have worked and lived and had lots of experiences primarily southern Africa, you know, they call themselves Sangomas. And now Sangoma is a Zulu word, which basically means one who's able to see into the future. And they wear many hats, these folks. They can go out into the boondocks, into the middle of nowhere, and come back with a bunch of berries and leaves and barks and, you know, stuff that they dig out of the ground and concoct medication for someone who has an illness. And nine times out of ten, these people get cured. Uh, so they can be healers. They can be communicators with your ancestral spirits. And the whole paradigm of the African shaman, the Sangoma, is this. It's all done through the ancestor. The shaman, the Sangoma, that person's ancestor connects with your, the patient's ancestor. And in the spirit world, they have a discussion. And then that message is given to the shaman through the way the bones fall on the grass mat. And that's how this person interprets mm-hmm. what your future may be or why your your wife has run off with someone else and who that someone else may be or where you lost the wallet that you say you know you lost. They do mm-hmm. all kinds of things, but it's all to do with communicating with the ancestors. Mm-hmm. And I'm, wondering, I'm wondering if they can tell Will Smith who his wife Jade is banging. Um, all right, let's get another question uh, and there are some things that you, you're related to Hollywood, obviously. And put y'all away first, says Lionel, are there any good people in Hollywood? Are there any good people in Hollywood? Mm-hmm. Sure there are. There are lots of good people in Hollywood. Yeah, there are lots of bad people, too. But the problem is that, you know, <laughs> you know, people sometimes get a, um, a, a maybe the wrong impression of, of Hollywood people. Well, let's, we must understand that actors particularly. You know, these guys cannot get up in front of a camera and a crew of 100 people and deliver their lines and act to pretending to be somebody else without having an ego. Because without the ego, you cannot be someone else. And so there's a lot of ego in this business, mm-hmm. particularly amongst the acting community. And mm-hmm. so that's maybe where people misinterpret these people. They sort of think they've got monstrous egos, you know, larger than life. And to a very large extent, that is true. But that's how they manage to, to do what they do. Uh, when it comes to the producers and the Harvey Weinsteins and guys like that, well, that's another story entirely. But believe me, 
Everybody is not like that at all. Most people who work in this business are dedicated professionals, hardworking people, absolutely honest, done and out decent folk who put in, you know, a very, very hard day's work six days a week in order to bring us the movies that we love and the television shows that we like, you know, and they're hardworking folks. They're not evil and they're not bad. Mm. Okay. Um, Richard Ar uh, Aragon says, uh, I know why, or no, actually, this is about the pilot, said, did the pilot's eyes look evil? Obviously connected to, to Adolf Hitler. Not in the least. He actually had the most um, very pleasant pale blue eyes. Uh, he was a very, very pleasant looking guy. You know, and I have to tell you, um, and the guy who asked the question, you know, when I was doing this interview with this man, um, for me, because I've interviewed a lot of folks in my time as a documentary filmmaker, you know, I, I've lost count, uh, from politicians to scientists to you name it. And when I was interviewing this guy, I thought, how are you going to deal with this? And, and, I, and what you have to do is you have to have a mindset that deals with the situation. You've got to be, you've got to be very, very tightly focused. And I saw him as nothing other than a pilot, a professional person doing a professional job of flying an airplane under very difficult circumstances back in the 30s in the day when, you know, there weren't all these facilities that we have today uh, or the reliability of, of airplanes today and engines and things. It was very, very tough those days to do what he did. So I had to narrow my view down to him in that sense. I didn't think of him, you know, as being part of the whole Nazi regime mm -hmm. and all of that, which he was. But, you know, you have to be very, very careful and don't be too judgmental because in actual fact, he was his his behavior was very, very, um, you know, uh, conducive and he was very sweet, very nice. So was his wife. Mm -hmm. uh, but behind that lurked the fact that, you know, he was a uh, he was, a, you know, he was, a, uh, you know, a, a very, very close friend of, 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 of Hitler, who we know has gone down in, in history as one of the you know, nastiest guys this side of Genghis Khan. You know, perhaps more so. Well, you've met some top-notch people, of course, and one of those is uh, right there. Uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Charles Hesson, you know, what's it like to meet somebody in that caliber? Well, you know, I'm, I'm now I've been used to, and I don't want to sound, you know, bold or brash or arrogant about this at all. You know, I've, I've worked with so many um, really good people in my time that um, – you eventually get used to that. You have to treat them with respect, of course. Uh, this this particular shot that we that you see there, I did a I did a show uh, for American Movie Classics on the history of Cecil B. DeMille. Cecil B. DeMille was a great film director, and mm -hmm. um, Charlton Heston's first uh, couple of movies uh, were with uh, uh, Cecil B. DeMille, um, including The Greatest Show on Earth back in 1951 which won the best picture that year. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he present, he was the host of the show. And uh, he knew C.B. DeMille extremely well. And and Chuck Heston was a very, very nice guy. I mean, yeah, you had to, you had to, you had to be respectful. You couldn't, cr there were certain lines that you don't cross. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's just part, part, part of the course. Mm -hmm. When you work with actors in a, in a studio environment and you work very, very, very closely, particularly if you're a member of the camera crew, where your lenses and your equipment and you are in their face all the time. Mm -hmm. you know, eventually they get to know you and you get to know one another. But as long as you res you're respectful, it's fine. Mm -hmm. He was a great guy. I liked him enormously. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I thought he was a terrific actor in his time. I mean, this guy was just amazing, you know. And then and, and Debbie Reynolds was another person who was just an absolute charming, 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 wonderful woman.
And she was in one of my favorite movies of all time, you know, um, uh, Singing in the Rain. I mean, how can anyone ever forget? It's an American did, classic, and she was in it. She was the star of the show. Did you, did you, uh, uh, she's also known for uh, her afterlife beliefs. Did you yes. discuss any of those things with her? Oh, no, I didn't. I didn't. I would have loved to have, but I, I did not, no. Well, that was really kind of like later, I guess, from the, from the movie era that seemed like after she stopped doing them, she started delving into things like that, like uh, maybe you know, uh, different like coming back from the dead or something like that. Uh, hey, Rose has this question for you. Lionel says, how how did you sell the idea of having shows about aliens and UFOs? A lot of people were ridiculed in for just believing in the paranormal in the beginning. Well, we still are. I mean, you know, I, many times I can't talk to most folks about that subject because they laugh at me, you know. Uh, they laugh at me. And uh, I, 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 I've stopped trying. But when you, the the, uh, the very first show I did uh, on the topic, I think, was actually predated Ancient Aliens by a number of years. This was back in the mid-90s. I don't remember the network. I think it was probably A&E. We did – it was part of a, a series that I was doing with Leonard Nimoy called Ancient Mysteries. Mm -hmm. And one of the shows that we did was to look at, are there – is there any evidence in ancient history of uh, examples of UFOs? You know, did the ancient pharaohs see it and did the Mayans see it? And, and the answer to that is yes, they did. Uh, and you can see evidence of this on, in, in, in certain hieroglyphs and in certain temple walls in, in Egypt, uh, all over Mesoamerica, Central America. You know, there is evidence of, 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 of encounters that people have made pictures of and uh, paintings of. Mm -hmm. Even Certainly. Even in the deserts of China and Australia, you know, there are images uh, on cave walls and things of, 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 of strange objects, of circular objects. They, these things have been going on for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So no doubt that they're around. But when you talk to most folks, you know, they still, they still laugh at you. I have to be careful. You know, even members of my own family, when the minute I bring up the topic, they say, oh, yeah, here we go again. You know, but <laughs> it, it's, it's, it, it's a subject that maybe one of these days there might be some kind of disclosure about what's really been going on and i would hope that that would be the case because mm -hmm. obviously something has been going on for a long long time and i'll give you an example of what i mean um we cut back to the uh, we go back to the year 1966 and i'm in canada and i'm doing a documentary there for the national film board of canada and the the subject of the film is housing how towns and urban uh, areas develop and why mm -hmm. you know okay. why do people go and live in the middle of the prairies you know and in the, you know why do why do folks gather and start a town well it's usually because of some kind of agricultural activity or whatever mm -hmm. but we were filming in the province of Saskatchewan and there was a potash plant now potash is the stuff you dig out of the ground oh, they okay. use the fertilizer and various other reasons mm -hmm. and so a town was forming around this plant and uh, so we use that as the example of the catalyst that forms, that starts urban development. Yeah. It's in the middle of nowhere. And um, we, were, we, we stayed, the crew, there were only three or four of us on this, this crew. And we, uh, those were back in the days of station wagons. We had a station wagon. And we were driving towards this potash plant to go do our filming. Early in the morning, we were all at this little motel. And as we got closer to this plant, there was this cloud of smoke where they were digging, you know, the mining activities, made a white, you know, dust, 
and there was a sort of cloud sitting above the plant in the sky. And as we got closer to it, you know, this, this cloud got bigger and bigger and bigger. And when we got to the main gate of this plant, the guy at the gate said, do you fellas better get down to the parking lot because there's something up in that cloud up there. <laughs> wow. Like yeah. what, you know? Yeah. What, what? So, we don't know, but there's something up there. I said, well, you know, like, what is it? What is it? We said, I don't know, but it's up there. So anyway, <laughs> anyway, we drive down, and um, I wasn't directing. I was, you know, mem- just a member of the camera crew. So the, the director Lee gets out, and he goes and talks to the manager of the plant about the filming that we're going to do that day. And he said to me, "Why don't you set up the camera and put on the uh, the longest lens, like a telephoto lens, if you like, mm-hmm. um, and see if you can see anything up there?" Which I did. And a couple of guys who worked at the plant came over to me smoking, you know, and uh, they said, yeah, there's something up there, you know, maybe you could see it. We saw it this morning. And, you know, I was desperately trying to find something in this cloud, and I saw nothing until a little breeze came by. Mm. Mm. And the cloud sort of shifted. And the minute that happened, there it was. There was a like a, like a, 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 a sharp um, reflection of metal. And I, I focused up on it and, you know, and there, as clear as a bell, was the circular object just sitting up there in the cloud. No sound, no windows, no noise, no propulsion system evident, nothing. It just sat there, this is the circular thing, and like a triangle um, structure beneath it. Wow. And um, I, I, I ran some film. I, you know, it just, we were using film those days, long before the days of video. Mm-hmm. We, we were shooting film. And, uh, and I ran film of this object. I must have shot about four or five minutes of it, but it wasn't doing anything. So, mm-hmm. you know, eventually I turned off the camera. And um, that's the end of that story. Uh, the cloud eventually moved mm-hmm. back there. And, 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 and that sounds like a story that you can't tell your people. You can't tell them that one. Well, no, I did. When the director came, I said, "Did you see anything?" I said, "Yeah, I did," and I, I got film of this film. He said, "Oh, my God, <laughs> well, you, you, you had proof." So, hey, they they had to sh- they, they they couldn't they couldn't come in. Yeah, uh, but let me just tell you this because here's the thing: we talk about cover-ups. We eventually get back to Montreal to go and look at the dailies, what we call dailies. You know, the stuff yeah. that you shot, mm-hmm. and we're looking at all this this footage that we shot about this the the the, the plant and the town. And there in the dailies is this object as clear as a bell, you know. And so the head of the camera department says, oh, my God, that's absolutely weird. Why don't we send that down to the United States? Because apparently uh, in Ohio at at Wright-Patterson Air Force mm-hmm. Base, mm-hmm. there's a thing called Project Blue Book. Maybe those folks can make some sense out of it. So we had the editor remove that piece of film. And it was sent. There was, this was before the days of uh, FedEx and before the days of you know, um, of, of, of carriers like we had now. Mm-hmm. I think it was sent through the mail. And um, Project Blue Book actually signed for the, the, this footage that we sent them. Nice. And weeks go by and nothing happens. And, you know, um, I go on another project. And eventually I, I went to the camera department one day and I said, did we ever hear back from those guys? And Frankie Johnson was her name. I'll never forget her name. Frankie Johnson she said, oh, yeah, that stuff we sent down to the States. Let me call them. Well, the time difference didn't allow her to call that day, but the next day she did. And she calls me into her office and she said, I want to tell you something. And I go there and she says, they denied ever receiving the footage. Well, we know they got the footage because they signed for it. So, you know, is there a cover-up? You betcha something's been going on to cover up the fact that this stuff exists. 
And that really pisses me off. Okay, I I, I don't I, I just don't like that. It's, it's like who put them in charge of what we what we're able to receive and not. You know, I, I just I just don't like that. Let me welcome to the show uh, Roxy W and Freely Speaking to join us in the live chat. If you have a question for our guest, Lionel, put your questions in the live chat and our moderator will send it to us. By the way, Lionel, we have a a poll question really kind of related to your your topic tonight, but it, it it actually is about paranormal activity. I don't know if you've seen it, but people have the uh, ability to vote on these, uh, basically two polls. Have you had a near-death experience, and what paranormal activity have you experienced? Right now, uh, 30% of the respondents say they have seen flying orbs. 19 have had an alien encounter. 8, 16, an angelic encounter. 11% said they've seen a ghost. 11%, sorry for these folks, have had demonic incursions. So uh, there, so we'll see if those numbers change as we as we talk about these uh, sort of uh, esoteric subject tonight. But let's get to another couple of questions and we'll get back to you. Uh, Freely Speaking says, Lionel, are you familiar with the findings of Credo Mutwa, a Zulu Sangoma from South Africa? Absolutely. Unfortunately, he's passed away now. Uh, he was grossly overweight, and uh, he suffered from diabetes. Kritikut uh -oh. was a wonderful, was a wonderful, was a wonderful man, and a very well-known sangoma. He was known around the world, and he wrote uh, a, a marvelous esoteric history of the Zulu people. And by the way, Zulu, the word Zulu mm -hmm. means from the sky. Oh. And, you know, he said, you know, that my people are 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 not from here; they're from somewhere else. The word Zulu wow. means sky. Uh, you know, the, sky the, people. We are the sky people. Yeah. Mm. And, um, you know, I have asked many, many times when I've worked in uh, on ethnographic films, uh, be they with with tribes or whatever, in rural areas in many parts of of Africa. I've always asked the question of the of either the local chief or the headman. You know, at the appropriate moment. You know, have you ever seen anything in the sky? Have you ever seen anything at night? And invariably, the answer has been yes, of course. We have, you know, they're around. They're around all the time. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's, it, there's nothing uncommon. And to a lot of the, a, a lot of those people, it's just an everyday occurrence. It's not a big deal. It happens all the time, and they've been seeing it for hundreds and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So why don't we talk about it? You know. Okay. And now Rose says, Lionel, have you had any kind of paranormal encounter with aliens, angels, etc.? I have not had any direct encounters myself with angels, but uh, you know, uh, or, or 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 aliens. But I've talked to a lot of people who have, mm -hmm. and fortunately, you know, I live in L.A. and L.A. is not too far from Palm Springs, and once every year, this was going on for many many years until COVID put an end to it. There's an event called Contact in the Desert. People, some mm -hmm. of your yeah. listeners may know about that, okay. and, and I, I I go to Contact in the Desert regularly every year until. COVID ended that. Hopefully, we'll be going back maybe even this year. We'll see. I hope we are because, you know, I've met all those guys and all the speakers and I, I know them. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is a fascinating place to go and talk to people like that. And anyone can go. So I cannot recommend highly enough if anybody is really interested in the paranormal or in alien encounters or anything of that nature, you know, go to Contact in the Desert. It is a wonderful, wonderful place where you will meet like-minded people like yourself and you can talk about the stuff freely without being embarrassed or without being shouted down as being an idiot. You know, they take it seriously. I have sat in on a, a, a number of, of experience sessions 
people who have described, you know, being uh, abducted uh, at night uh, from their beds and, uh, you know, um, even in backyards and listen to their stories. And uh, some of their tales are absolutely extraordinary, absolutely amazing. And I don't doubt for one moment because these are these the, the, most of the cases I've heard, maybe some of them are not entirely real. And maybe some of these people have really vivid imaginations, but 90% of what I have heard and the people I've spoken to are absolutely convincing to me. <laughs> these things really happened. <laughs> and I know of a remarkable guy who is originally from Guatemala. He talks about these amazing experiences he has. He's traveled, you know, um, in space. He's gone to other planets. Um, there's an organization, folks may know about this. This is so this doesn't fall into the world of the of the you know of the of, of the wanna believes. This is a, an actual fact. <laughs> uh, um, in Virginia, there's an institute known as the Monroe Institute, and the Monroe Institute is an absolutely remarkable place because people can go there. Mainly, you know, um, um, burnt out businessmen. They need to go out there. They need to <laughs> basically just debrief themselves and you know get back their uh, their their uh, get get their breaths back again after um, you know from from the business world. They go there and they are exposed to audio waves, which elevates one's consciousness. And I have talked to people who don't believe in any of this stuff. But after having experienced going to the Monroe Institute and going to another realm, if you like, of consciousness, tell me, you know, that they have traveled, you know, um, to other parts of the universe. There's a guy, and I'm not going to mention names because I know he wouldn't want me to do that. And he used to work for NASA. And he said, you know, I have met my father, who is now deceased. I have met my grandfather. And I've met all of their grandfathers. Whoa. On my travel, uh, you know, and I, I don't doubt for one moment that he's telling me the truth. This is a nuts and bolts guy who designs rocket engines. Mm -hmm. You know, he yeah. doesn't make up this stuff. Y yeah, you would think he, he wouldn't be talking fool, fool stuff there. Hey, let's get to another question here for you. Uh, it says, uh, and this is from our moderator, Jay. It says, Lionel, of all the subjects you've studied concerning unexplained phenomena, which one or ones are the most memorable to you? question God, that is a, that's an interesting topic you know it, it, it probably my answer to that would probably be uh, less um, spectacular than 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 this guy would be hoping me to say but I have to say that I think what I have learned more than anything else is the fact that we are all I believe we're all in some way or another connected and I'm going to give you an example of what I mean um, I was on a safari uh, film in 1967 in a, in a country called Mozambique. Mm -hmm. At that time, Mozambique was basically a, a colony of, of Portugal, mm -hmm. and it sits on the east coast of Africa. And I was on a safari with a guy who invented the hula hoop and the frisbee, a man by the name of Spud Millen. He ran it. At, he had a toy company, Whammo Toys, here in California. Mm -hmm. And he went out there on safari with two of his buddies. One was a stockbroker. One was a, a, an, an, an insurance agent. And uh, they went there on safari to go and hunt animals. Um, and he wanted a film made about that safari. And I was a loner, just me, and a, and a, and a, and a camera. Um, and I was given an assistant to, 
you know, carry all my bits and pieces and the accessories and whatever else to make a film about what these guys were doing and to make a film about this, uh, their, uh, their hunting safari. And it was very, very well mounted, cost a lot of money. You know, at night there was martini flowing and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't rough and tumble. Believe me, it was very luxurious. And we had two white hunters who, who led the, 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 the safari. And comes the time now for one of the guys, the stockbroker, it was his turn to actually shoot an elephant. Part of the, the, their license included shooting various animals. They each could take one elephant. And um, it, it was his turn to, to, to get an elephant. And we, 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 we tracked this herd on foot for two days. Uh, we actually slept in the boondocks, in the bush one particular night. No, no sleeping bags, no nothing, because we're following this herd. And the next day we found the herd, and the white hunter points out to this guy, to, 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 to this American guy, he says, mm-hmm. see that old bull over there on the right-hand side of the, of, of the, of the herd? That's the one you want to you wanna go for. He's an old guy. He's been, you know, basically he's lost his place in the, in the hierarchy of the herd. You can take him out, but don't touch the others, but don't miss. <laughs> right. And so, you know, all this is happening. And, of course, you know, we position ourselves out of, uh, not, you know, in the right direction so the wind didn't take our scent towards them and, and all sorts of things. And um, I positioned myself right behind the guy with the rifle who's going to shoot the elephant. So I've got a shot of the herd, him in the fo- directly in front of me, the herd in the background, and I'm shooting over his shoulder and he's got his gun, and he's going to shoot this elephant. And behind me is the white hunter telling him what to do, you know. So my shot is, is perfectly framed okay. for what is to, about to happen. And if he shoots, and of course he misses. Uh-oh. And there was absolute chaos because the herd went crazy. They went shooting in every which way, plundering. It was like an earthquake. And when the dust settled, there was one female left behind she hadn't moved and then we realized why because she had a baby next to her which we hadn't seen in the herd there was a baby next to her um, a young a young elephant and all she did was she stared at this guy with a gun in front of me and she flapped her ears like this and she said you know you could see that she was really angry this man was threatening the life of her baby and she started to charge him so i'm here he's in front of me and now you have an elephant charging towards us as full at full whack. She wants to kill him. And all I could hear in my ear at the back was, run, run, run. I couldn't move because, you know, I've got this heavy camera. There's a guy next to me with a wet cell battery pack, which weighs a ton. I couldn't move. But the, the, the guy in front of me, you know, this, this American guy, runs out of my frame. And all, all that's left is just me and this elephant charging towards me. Now, she wasn't angry with me, but she couldn't stop herself now. She would have run right into me and killed me. And at the very, very last minute, she must have been maybe 10 feet away from me. There was over in my area with this bam, and the white hunter shot her. Oh. She looked at me, and I, I felt awful for her because this was a mother protecting her baby. And she fell down, you know, on her, she, her legs toppled and she fell down. And very, very slowly she heaved over onto her side. Her eyes were locked with mine, completely locked with mine. And slowly the eyes, you could see the life going out of her eyes and she died. Mm. And I felt a connection with that, the spirit of that elephant. 
and I use the word spirit of that elephant in every sense of the word. She had a spirit, and I felt that spirit, and she felt mine. I know that. That night, we back at camp, back at base camp, everybody's nurturing their martinis, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, sitting in the corner of this big grass hut, you know, base camp lounge area that, that they had there, and I'm nurturing my drink, and I'm thinking, I could have been killed today. I could have died. And it's, I suddenly realized this is another one of the predictions that that little old lady gave me, that little old shaman, way, way back years ago. She told me, be very, very careful because in the bush one day you will meet a beast and that beast will almost kill you. She predicted this. And I suddenly realized, well, here's another example of what that woman foresaw. Now, to get back to the theme of your question, I put that out of my mind and we, let's, we, we cut ahead you know, to many, many years. And every single time I have been back to Africa and gone to consult with the Sangomas, the shamans, mm-hmm. particularly on health issues, because I developed a health issue, which is one of the reasons why I went back to Africa to basically try and find a, a way to get healed because mm-hmm. I was seriously ill. I had a, developed a, an autoimmune kidney condition. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, yeah, I had great doctors here in LA, but you know, I wasn't getting any better. And um, a friend of mine who's a surgeon, he said, you know, why don't you go back and maybe those guys can help you. So I met a lot of of Sangomas in the, in, in, in the ensuing years, every single time they threw the bones and, and interpreted my illness for me, the very first thing that they would say was, what is this elephant that we see around you? So I have learnt, and I know, that the spirit of that elephant and I still communicate with one another. Hmm. That poor mother of that poor calf that was killed that day She's still with me. She's still around me. And I think that she's providing some sort of protective element, ele- element mm-hmm. to me in my life. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel that. I'm surrounded, by the way. You can't see my surroundings here, but I've got elephants everywhere. On every shelf in my office, there's an elephant that hangs from the mirror in my car, you know, because I know that that elephant and I are still connected to this day. And I think that w- – so what is the lesson of this is that we humans – and the animal kingdom can form a connection, a spiritual link, a spiritual connection that we are all mm-hmm. connected in some mm-hmm. strange and mysterious way that I don't fully understand. That for me has been the most amazing discovery uh, in answer to the question that that mm-hmm. guy posed. Mm-hmm. Well, Lori, Lori Tillman in the live chat says, uh, Lionel, what happened to the baby elephant? Oh, the baby elephant, you know. Uh, obviously, the, the baby the baby wasn't drinking on the mother, so the other she was eventually mm-hmm. absorbed back into the mm-hmm. herd, and uh, I'm sure that you know she was eventually um, she she eventually uh, was become became a, a, an adult member of that mm-hmm. particular herd of elephants. But you know, elephants are extraordinarily intelligent, and I believe you know understanding creatures. I don't know if pe- you know, folks. Um, I have looked into the eye of a whale. I was on, a, on an expedition to Antarctica, and um, we had all these whales on the side of the ship one day, and one whale surfaced, and this big eye came up out of the ocean. And, and when I looked at the eye of this whale, you know what? I could see intelligence behind that eye. And, you know, people talk about 
Yeah, very strange. I did another series years later for National Geographic, where I was based in in uh, in Monterey, up in Central California. And Monterey has one of the world's finest aquariums. And in this aquarium, there was there's a giant octopus there, a huge, old, very old octopus. And this octopus knew its keeper. When its keeper came to feed it, it recognized it. And I would go there regularly, going to go and look at this 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 octopus. And one day, it it left its little burrow and it came up to the glass, and again looked at me. And I looked into its eyes, and again I felt the same sensation as I did when I looked into the eyes of the whale. So whether it's an octopus or a whale or an elephant or whatever, you know, we are all linked. We're mm-hmm. all one. We all we look very different. We behave very differently. We don't speak the same language. You know. Some of us can build rocket ships. Others just hang around in the bush and eat grass. But we're all connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's uh, a couple stories in the Bible, I think, about talking animals. One of them was, I think, Balaam's donkey. And uh, the guy kept hitting the donkey, trying to get him to go somewhere, but he wasn't going anywhere because he saw an angel. But I think it's one of the few times where an animal, is, where there's, where there's this, 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 this story where what is the animal thinking is revealed, you know, and it, to me, that's almost like a human-like thing. Why, why are you hitting me? I'm not going there. There's, some, there's something right in front of me. So, you know, I always wondered about that. What do animals think? And it's clear. I think, I think what you're suggesting, Lionel, is that animals have a soul. Certainly, American Indians believe that, uh, so, and specific animals have specific yeah. reasons. Uh, oh, there's no question of that. There's no question of that. So, no, no question. Okay, well, let's get to another question for you. Uh, this is from Freely Speaking. and Lionel, can you discuss the work of Dr. John Mack, the psychiatrist, Harvard Medical School, who conducted numerous studies on alien abductions? I do not. I'm not familiar with his work at all. Okay. Um, a lot of people have done research like that, but I'm not familiar with this man's work. I'm okay. sorry. Not a problem. All right, let's go to this question. Uh, Rose says, uh, or, I'm sorry. Yeah, this is Rose. Uh, have you have you ever created a show for television that has left you dumbfounded? Like I can't believe I did, I guess, or or, or that we we found this out or some kind of thing. Well, you threw up an image a while back uh, for a show that I did called Beyond Death, mm-hmm. and that was a two-hour special that I did. Once again, I cannot remember the the cable company the, that I did it for. It might have been A and E. It might have been one of those. I'm not sure. I forget. Mm-hmm. But it was the mid mid 90s. And it was a two-hour special. There's, that's it, yeah. Um, it was a two-hour special, and, 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 and the brief was this from the network. Go and find out what happens to the consciousness of a person after the demise of the physical body. In other words, what happens to your thoughts? What happens to your consciousness? Mm-hmm. And if you go? want to use another word, use the word soul if you want to. Mm-hmm. What happens to that when the body dies? Does it go away? Does it, where does it go? What happens to it? The sum total of your experiences, whatever makes you who you are, the nature of your being, your consciousness, your awareness levels, does that all just go? Are these just little neurons firing in your brain or is it something else? Mm-hmm. And if so, what happens to it when the heart stops beating? Where does all this stuff go? So we did uh, this. This is what the focus of the show was about. And I have to tell you that I met people who had near death experiences that were astounded me. Um, and I'll give you one of one example. And it's a well-known case. I won't use names, but but the story took place in Atlanta, in Georgia. This poor woman had an aneurysm on her brain 
And the only way they could get rid of it was to actually open up her skull and stop her heart um, and then go into the brain, remove the aneurysm, and then close her up again. But the, the blood flow, while the heart was stopped, the blood was sent through a machine that kept the blood flowing, right? Mm -hmm. So clinically, she was dead for like eight or nine minutes. Her first name is Pam. I'll say that much. But the, the, she, you can, folks can easily Google her and, and find her. She's out there and she's told the story many, many times. Um, and many, many people have quoted, you know, this, uh, her, this, this particular case often. And, and she, um, she, she, she was ev eventually resuscitated. She was revived after the surgery, which went on for hours and hours and hours. And um, when she came to, you know, uh, she said to her surgeon, the surgeon went in the next morning and said, Pam, how are you doing? And she said, oh, I'm fine, doc. Thanks very much. And, and he said, you, you, you know, you, you got any pain? She said, no, no, no. And he was asking her questions. And it, she said, it was very strange watching what you did to me. And he said, what do you mean by that? And she said, well, you know, after I had the anesthetic, I floated up out of my body. And I, I was in the corner of the operating room mm -hmm. looking down at what you were doing to me. He said, oh, yeah, right, sure, you know, I believe you, you know. <laughs> he didn't believe a word of it, of course. And he said, um, okay, you believe that you did that. You were dead, babe. You were actually dead at the time. You were clinically dead. You could not possibly have experienced what you're telling me you mm -hmm. did. And she said, no, I saw all that. And, she said, and he said, all right, give me, give me an example. Give me some proof. Make me believe you. And she said, okay. You know the time you asked the nurse to pass you that instrument and she dropped it and you scolded her? Which he did. Wow. And he said to her, you saw that? And she said, I sure did. Of course I did. And he, he said to her, honey, you were dead at that time. And she said, well, you may think so. I saw that happen. And here's something else that actually blew his mind. This, the, the, the surgery went on so long that he would have a little uh, tape deck running in the corner of the mm -hmm. operating room mm -hmm. playing his favorite music, right, the surgeon. And she said to him, by the way, I don't like your music. And he said, well, what do you remember hearing? She named him, you know, six or seven of, of the songs that, uh, that, that she heard on his, on his playlist, you know, from this tape deck. It was tape deck uh, days before digital music. He said, you actually heard the music that I was playing, she said, yeah, you know, the guy could not believe this, but it was mm -hmm. obvious that her consciousness was as awake and as alive and as alert as a living person, mm -hmm. but where, as she was actually clinically dead. But here's even something even more amazing. I met a pediatrician in, in, in Seattle who works with kids, and these are kids who were, who were clinically dead. And he did a study of these kids, not only his own patients, but from mm -hmm. other surgeons as well. And they all knew about his work. And they would, you know, bring their case studies to him. And he would make, um, he, he, he had a whole pile of, of examples of this. These were all kids under the age of six or seven. You know, they were young, young, young children. And invariably, these kids, once when, when they were clinically dead, they spoke about tunnels of light, people in white, uh, um, you know, angelic-looking beings. Mm -hmm. Some kids called them angels. Some of the kids called them, oh, it was Jesus. Some of the kids said, oh, it was God. Some of the kids said, oh, that was Granny and Grandpa, who in actual fact were dead for years and years. Mm -hmm. um, some, of the, some of the kids actually said, oh, these were spacemen. But they all described these beings, you know, these, these beings 
encased in, in, in beams of light, white light, they all described the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that they were all given a choice when they were on what they called the other side. They said we were in a room, you know, and these beings came. Invariably, these children were given a choice to come back to mommy and daddy down here mm-hmm. or to stay on the other side with the angels or the spacemen or whatever they, these kids were seeing. And those kids who decided, who said, no, no, I want to go back to mom and dad. I want to go go back again, you know. Those are the kids who survived the experience. And they all had similar stories to tell. None of these kids knew each other. Mm-hmm. Their, their stories were almost exactly similar, you know. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's a remarkable um, uh, companion, companion, compendium of stories that were compiled. And if I could remember the name, but I, I can't, I'm sure folks can find it. Uh, done by this amazing guy who I met while I was making Beyond Death. Uh, he put these stories together, and it was the story of, of two mothers whose sons both died under rather tragic circumstances. One woman, her son was killed while driving, uh, while riding his motorcycle mm-hmm. uh, in a vacant lot mm-hmm. in the outskirts of town in New Jersey, and he didn't realize there was a cable stretched across from between two trees, and he was decapitated. Mm-hmm. Other mother, uh, and she was, I think, in upstate New York, she lost her son during surgery. He died on the operating table. And the amazing thing is, is that these two women, without knowing it, were each, eventually, they started dreaming about their own sons after their sons had passed away. And each of their sons had a, one day came to them in a dream and said, Mom, this is so-and-so, and named this person. And the, fa- the amazing thing is that what was going on in the spirit world was that these two dead guys were seeing each other of these two mothers made friends with their sons. They made friends in the spirit world. And it was long, a long, long and involved and very circuitous road how these two women eventually got together and met. And we actually filmed the first time they got together. And when these two women got together for the very, very first time, they both had photograph albums of their sons. And then the one woman said to the other, that's your son? Well, that's the guy who my son introduced me to in my dream. And the other woman told the same thing to this woman. Yeah. And in your book, that's your son? Well, that's the guy who my son brought to me in my dream. Oh, wow. Well, let me hear something, Lionel. Um, the, the Bible has some of the most detailed descriptions of what happens when we die, including numerous conversations of people on this side talking to people in another dimension. And, uh, uh, and it's quite extensive, what it, what it, the stories that it tells about what happens when you die. Have you ever researched that in doing a, a, a film? Did, you know, or or did, it ever, did it ever, in your interviews, like even Beyond Death and others, did it ever lead you to look in the Bible to see if there's a cooperation to what these people are saying? Well, I, did, I didn't do that directly, and, and I'm only talking about this Beyond Death two-hour special that I did. This is the only show that I did on this particular topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't necessary to do that because people talk about this all the time. And I mean, this is the message that you hear from the pulpit. This is the message that you will hear in church. People talk about that. The priests, you know, talk about this. They, and they say, this is what the Bible says. So we didn't, we didn't address that. Um, but, you know, in some, in some instances, people that I interviewed, and I must have interviewed in the show, there must be about, and I, and I wish it were possible because for, for, for a while, Beyond Death was available to look at free on YouTube. 
mm-hmm. for some reason, the network has pulled the show. Oh. It's no longer available. Uh, there was a time where people could go on and look at it on, 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 on YouTube. It's gone now. Um, <laughs> but we, we must have interviewed about 30 or 40 people in the show under various circumstances. And, you know, um, some of them did reference the fact that, yeah, what I learned in Sunday school and what my priest told me and so on, you know, I now know it's true, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, people validated that fact. Mm-hmm. Now, you said that the, the 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 little old lady with the fingers, and that's, that kind of scared me when you first said that. You, said you see kind of these bony fingers. I'm kind of thinking, wow, man, she's going to put a hex on you, you know, if the little lady's creeping around like that. But did she did, did she did she tell you about your end of life? No, she didn't tell me about that, but she told me would that you, I was going to develop this illness that I Would, would you want to know? I don't want to know. I don't. Th- it, I don't think it's necessary to know. Why would I want to know that? No, I don't mm-hmm. think so. I, I. I think there. There are some things which should remain a mystery, mm-hmm. because we're here for a purpose, and we're here to learn. Mm-hmm. We're here to do the best we can, and we're here to live as, uh, as, as decent and as righteous and as noble and as worthwhile a life as we can. And I don't think there's any point in cutting corners by knowing how it's all going to end. We've just got mm-hmm. to practice what we know to be the truth mm-hmm. and what we believe to be the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it's all about. We need not necessarily know the end of story, mm-hmm. you know. And then mm-hmm. there, 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 there should be an element of mystery. Why should we? Why should we peek under the, the covers and find out what's going on? You know, <laughs> right, right. we know that. Right. We think that we want to know, but I don't think that we do. Uh, speaking of near-death experiences, I never got to that poll. Right now, we have respondents for Have you had a near-death experience? Seventy-eight uh, percent said no, but twenty-one percent of the respondents said they have had a near-death experience. That, that seems to me would really shake somebody's belief system up one way or another. Yeah, and uh, you know, and that's a high number. Twenty-one. That's that. That's a that's a big number. Yeah, that that is, and it's interesting too because when you look at numbers of people who have seen UFOs, it's in the millions. Oh, it's, it's huge. Absolutely. So how, how is yeah. that? How is that still taboo and still be able to be ridiculed when so many people believe it and have experienced it? I don't get it. Yeah, exactly, and and that's a question we keep asking all the time. Why is there still this air of mystery and why is there still a cover-up going on? Because it is. We're not being told. Well, you know, the Disclosure Act um, or the Freedom of Information Act, if you like, um, has revealed some tiny truths to us. Now, now, you know, the the Pentagon has released that footage that was taken off the coast of San Diego. uh, The TikTok videos? They were videos. These were videos taken from two, two, um, I think they were Mm F-16s. Flying off the deck of the of, of an aircraft carrier off the coast of San Diego, and they saw this object flying above the ocean, and it was diving underneath the water and then coming up, and it was behaving nothing like anything that we know, and that footage has now been released. You can actually see it, and that is available on YouTube. People people mm-hmm. can see it. But let me tell you something interesting, Daniel. I did a show when when I did that show on on uh, on on early UFOs. Mm-hmm. Um, there was always a story that Gordon Cooper. Now, Gordon Cooper mm-hmm. was one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts. Mm-hmm. He's one yeah. of the original Mercury 7. And in fact, the movie, The Right Stuff, which people may remember from the 1980s, yeah. best-selling book, was a, was a terrific movie, was basically about Gordon Cooper. Um, and he was played by Dennis Quaid in the film. Anyway, there was always, a, there was always circulating in, in, in those circles, in the sort of UFO fraternity, 
that Gordon Cooper had seen UFOs when he was a young guy. Mm-hmm. I decided to ask him if he did. And I, we, 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 we sought him out. We, want, we wanted to find where he is. Turns out he had a little office. He was, he was quite elderly at the time. I think he was already in his 80s. He had an office at Van Nuys Airport here in L.A. And I went to talk to him there. I went to see him. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, Colonel, he's retired, but I said to him, Colonel, um, would you be in my uh, show about uh, UFOs, about uh, you know, about um, unidentified flying objects? And he said, heck yeah, absolutely. And I said, why? And he said, because you know what? We, astronaut corps, we had to sign an, an oath of secrecy, never to divulge anything that we had seen. And I have seen these things. They exist. I signed that act, and I've decided to break rank with NASA. There you go. That's exactly there. there you are. The, the thing behind you is what you uh, is what is what that footage looks like from yeah. the coast of San Diego. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost exactly like what I'm seeing on the screen behind you right now. And and he said, I'm I'm breaking rank with NASA, and I am going out, and I, I and I've been saying this for years. They're here. They're real. I've seen them. And he told me the story before he became an astronaut, before he was chosen by NASA to become one of the original Mercury 7. Uh, he was stationed at Ramstein Air Force Base, United States Air Force Base in Germany, where he flew F-86 Sabres. These were Korean-era uh, fighter jets. And, um, and he was based there. And one day he was scrambled. He and a, another airplane was scrambled to go and investigate an object flying over the skies of wherever Rammstein Air Force Base mm-hmm. is, right. go and investigate and see if they could get pictures, you know, photographs. These were reconnaissance F-86 cameras in the in the nose. Um, and they, they they flew up to this height. He said to me, I forget the exact height, but it, it was high, you know. We're talking like 30,000 feet. And, uh, and he said there was this circular object just sitting there, just sitting in the middle, just sitting there in the sky. And the minute we approached it, it darted away at like 5,000 miles an hour. And then suddenly stopped. And the minute we approached it again, boom, you know, it went up higher than we could fly. He said, these things defied the laws of physics as we know them. These are not of this earth. These are from someplace else. I can tell you that much. He was absolutely convinced of that. Yeah, even even you mentioned that they're in ancient history and, and, and in ancient... Uh pictographs and, and paintings. Uh, certainly the Bible talks about Ezekiel's wheel, which many say yeah, is, a, is a UFO. So that deserves to be looked into. Uh, the bear from the bear report says, Lionel, is there a show you've always wanted to do, but never have? Well, uh, probably 155,000. I mean, yeah, no, there are lots and lots of topics. You know, as a documentary filmmaker, mm-hmm. you develop an, an, an insatiable appetite to want to know more. I just want to know everything, and I want to get out there and make movies about all kinds of stuff. And I've been very, 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 very blessed. I really have. I've made shows about all kinds of topics, and, I, and I'm very, very grateful for that. But there are so many more things I'd love to be able to do. Um, I, I, there's no way that I could even quantify that and bring it down to a number. You know, mm-hmm. a, 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 the, These are the six subjects I'd still like to do because they're just mm-hmm. too many of them. Mm-hmm. But I think the one that gave me the most satisfaction uh, was a show I did for PBS um, about um, in the in the late 80s and the early 90s, there was a terrific science series on PBS called The Infinite Voyage. 
And these were really heavy science shows. Mm. Um, one of the shows I did was on dinosaurs. One of the shows was about uh, going down to Antarctica. Um, but anyway, the one that really um, gave me the most satisfaction, and if I had to choose one topic out of the entire panoply of shows that I've done in my time, this would be it. And it was a retrospective of the Voyager, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, the mission to the outer planets. These two spacecraft that took off in 19, that were launched in 1977. Mm -hmm. uh, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, there were two spacecraft. Mm -hmm. uh, they both went to Jupiter and then Saturn. And then Voyager 1 went off on a tangent off into space. But mm -hmm. Voyager 2, because of the way the planets were aligned at the time, they could take advantage of the planetary alignment and using the slingshot effect, which is the term that NASA uses for mm -hmm. it, the gravitational pull of these planets. These plan this, this Voyager 2 could go from Jupiter to Saturn to Uranus to Neptune and then out into the deepest realms of, of, of deep space. Mm. And that was, for me, one of the most amazing shows I've ever worked on because the amount of thinking and the amount of imagination and the amount of imagineering nice and the sure. amount of anticipation and all that that went into devising and creating this mission was just astounding. And the folks that I met, you know, were just the nicest people I've ever met. What did they do? These two objects are humanity's calling cards. These are the calling cards of, 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 of the human species. Now those, are, those are the ones with the gold disc? Exactly. Mm -hmm. well, I got an yeah. idea. I got an idea for for a movie for you. Uh, like I, I was just thinking, how about because I haven't seen this movie yet. Uh, the, the history of Daniel Lott and the Edge broadcast. That sounds like a, a gold star Emmy winning Emmy, Emmy winning award movie right there. Give me a bit more details of that. What is that? Yeah, Daniel Ott and the Edge broadcast. That's me. Yeah. And. Uh, <laughs> So I say oh, that'd be a good movie to have. I think. Oh, what you do want to do a movie about you? Okay, yeah. yeah. Did you get that? Okay. I, so, I yeah. got it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, any, anybody wears a hat on the internet deserves to have their own movie. As, well, uh, you know, you're not wearing a space helmet, so you're wearing a, 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 a cowboy hat. So listen, but got, but I got, I do got to tell you, Lionel, I've got I've got uh, I've got aluminum foil underneath here, <laughs> so so the aliens can't penetrate with their thought rays and tell me, you know. Different things. But you've made numbers, been involved with numbers of documentaries. The Bible's Gravest Secrets, Prophets, Soul Catchers, Queen Esther. A lot of stuff going on here. Mm -hmm. Alchemy. I mean, yeah. you, you've looked in. So you've looked into any of these subjects, mm -hmm. and it sounds like it looks. It sounds like there's a, a well-rounded view of a lot of things that's going on on the planet from different points of view. Mm. So have you kind of come to a, a central conclusion of what life is about and what happens in the next life? Or are you still kind of searching and you can't really like gravitate toward a, a singular answer to that yet? It's a good question, Daniel, and, and um, I'm going to answer it in this way. Um, the very last page of my book, which is you've thrown an image up on the screen, but the very last page of this book, um, not the last page, but the, the, the very last statement that I make in this book, which is one of the reasons why I wrote it, because I wanted to condense everything that I've learnt uh, over my years making movies about all kinds of topics that are absolutely compelling and you know humbling in so many ways, is that I think of 
uh, the world almost in as a way of looking at you know what what do they call those cars at the fairground? They call them bumper cars mm-hmm. or dodging yeah. cars. What do they call those things? Bumper you know. cars, yeah, yeah. So at the back of the, of a bumper car, you know, there's an aerial that goes up, right. you know, touches the, the ceiling because it's electric and connects to the electrical ceiling sparks. exactly. And it sparks. And, it looks and that's where it gets and the sparks, yeah. And I can smell the sparks. I lifted right. up those things as a kid. Right. And I think that we are all very similar to driving a bumper car. That's what I think of myself in the same way. And why do I say that? Because I think there's an aerial at the back of who I am. You know, okay. uh, I'm connected to a field in the same way as these bumper cars are. Mm-hmm. To a field that connects all of us. All life. And I said, the words I use actually in the book is, whether you're a person or a pony or a petunia, we are all cut from the same cloth and we all belong to the same life force. Mm -hmm. We all are connected to a cosmic grid. I really do believe that. And I think we're all on a journey, no matter who or what we are or what our level of sophistication or education or whatever may be, we're all on a journey. We're all here for a purpose. Do we understand the purpose? Perhaps not necessarily so, Mm -hmm. but the reason behind all of this. And we're all connected. And therefore, what does that teach you? You know, respect one another, respect all things, respect all life. There's a learning process here. That's why we're here. I think the, I think the Bible says God, God holds all things together by the power of his word. And you know, they, people used to believe that, say, you had a, a solid table, that it would be solid, maybe even a metal table. But Lionel, it's not solid. You go down far enough, there's, a, there's space there in between the molecules. Nobody knows why they are there, what holds them in place, and why they do what they do. And I, it kind of goes with, with our end-of-life mystery that we were saying, do we really want to know when our time is? Because there's a point in time, I'm sure, for each of us, and we don't know what that is, and we don't want to know. So, um, but we do have to live, like you just suggested, with love in our hearts and, and respect for all creatures and all people. You just can't go around disrespecting people and expect to have a fulfilled life. But if all things are held together, the, the, if, if, if there wasn't something holding together, the, the, everything would just explode. It would just go flying off into space and who knows where. So something, some, there is a mystery out there and it's, it's holding us together. And when you talk about that thing, touching the electric thing and the sparks, I know that smell you're talking about, that electrical smell, smells like an armature in a, in a stator on a rotor. But uh, imagine if that's God and we're all connected with the spark of life. I mean, there's a lot of metaphors there that could be that could be gleaned just from that little sim- simple statement. So I'm in the learning process just like you are, and I have been interviewed thousands of guests over the years doing the show since 2004 every week. Um and I haven't made definitive statements on 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 certain categories. Uh, I've, I'm drawn toward conclusions, and but I'm also willing to listen. I'm also willing to learn, and I don't have enough, so much pride. And and like you, I think you said in the first hour, the uh, the thing you got to have the the what is that word? Uh, uh, is it envy? Something like that. You've got to have you know people have that pride or whatever and but I, I don't I, I try to stay away from that so I'm yeah. I can learn things because you know it's better to learn from somebody else's mistakes than learn from your own so mm-hmm. if there's a better way or some truth or negative truth that somebody has I want them on the show and see if they can bring us that that little negative truth but nobody has it all 
No. That's what I found. Nobody has has it all. You're absolutely right. Yes, yes, exactly. And 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 this is something that we need to respect as we go on this as we are on this journey. And we are on this journey for a purpose. Do we understand the purpose? Not necessarily. And I don't think it's in, it's important that we do. But the fact that we are blessed with this, you know, we should relish that mm-hmm. and value that and make the best of it that we can. Mm-hmm. Well, Michael, that's another kind of thing one could say is, is you don't know when you're going, but li- live like you're going tomorrow. What would you how would you live today if you know you're going to go tomorrow? If we live like that every day. And it seems to me that you are you're. You're a person of life. It seems like you're gathering life any way you can. I can just see it. I can I can see that you love life and you mm. and, and and you find it wildly interesting. And there's so many interesting subjects. And I that's what always bothers me. We talked earlier how there's certain things you can't tell people or talk conversations you can't have with them. But right. you know those people got to be the most boringest people ever. Can you imagine if we had these conversations of what life is about and where we're going what's on the other side who is god why are we here these are great subjects and they're and and philosophers have pondered this forever and when somebody says i don't want to talk about that i gotta i gotta go to walmart i, I yeah. want to stay out of that that's a conversation that i don't want to have I, i'm not interested in that lionel <laughs> and everybody wants to do it and what's the weather like i don't want to know what the weather looks like i want to know if there's a ghost in the house you know what i'm saying exactly, exactly. i mean is that okay <laughs> I quite agree with you, totally, 100%. I'm with you, Daniel, all the way, absolutely. Well, hey, so you got this. I got the book in the background here, and uh, it looks like a fantastic book. Where can people get that, Lionel? You, you can get it on Amazon.com if you want to order it online, uh, or any bookstore, Barnes & Noble, uh, Walmart, they all sell the book, and if they don't have it on the shelves, they can order it for you. But it's available right now on, on Amazon, and if folks go to my website, which is my name, Lionel Friedberg. Uh, it's, it's written up there, mm-hmm. www.lionelfriedberg.com. They can actually read an excerpt of, from the book, and they can order directly from Amazon on my website if they if, 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 if they so choose, or go to Amazon themselves. So it's available everywhere. Yeah. Now, do you have any any new upcoming film projects? Um, I am currently working on a sci-fi project. Okay. Uh, uh, which I'm very excited about. It's going to take a year of my life. Whoa. That's how long these things take to do. And I recently, you know, finished a book on 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 uh, the history of aviation in Africa, which which I enjoy doing very much because that's an untold story that folks don't really know about. It's just an amazing tale. But um, yeah, my big thing right now is uh, is, is 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 trying to get this the sci-fi um, piece together mm-hmm. um i'm very excited about that what, what uh without spilling the bees or anything what what direction is that is that the uh, film going to take say too much and it's not a good idea to talk too much about the stuff you okay. you know you know what i mean okay okay, uh, okay. you don't want to jinx it but uh it touches on a lot of what we've been talking about okay okay good enough good 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 enough and there's several other books too i was going to ask you because we had that one screenshot of uh uh what was it called uh, full service uh is and you've been around people in Hollywood. Is is the, is the movie Eyes Wide Shut? Is that a reality? Is that a reality movie? Oh well, you know, you're talking about one of my favorite directors. We're talking about a guy called Stanley Kubrick. Mm-hmm. He's the man who made Eyes Wide Shut. I I have to tell you that a lot of folks will not agree with this, but I think Eyes Wide Shut. It's really about you know, um, it's about relationships. And about the frustration of relationships, that's what that's really what that book, what that story is about. You know, Kubrick um, did other movies that are 
that that are simply amazing. His greatest film, of course, was 2001: A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't get better than that. No. Yeah, that is the top of the heap when it comes to sci-fi, and it's my all-time favorite film in the history of the universe. I absolutely treasure that film because I think it's absolutely uh, a, a masterful. It's 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 artistic. It's thought-provoking. It's entertaining. A lot of people come out of it and they say, "What the dickens was that about?" Well, <laughs> you know. No, no, I I, I love that show, and I, I didn't. But let me ask you something. Did, didn't he do Capricorn 1? No, he didn't do Capricorn 1. Capricorn 1 is another g- good movie, but he did Clockwork Orange. Okay, because I was thinking Capricorn uh, 1, didn't it basically say that the moon landing was faked? Yeah, Capricorn 1 was about a mission to Mars that okay. went wrong. Okay, okay. But, uh, okay. And, and, and it was a 70s film. It's a good movie. I ran it again recently. It still holds. If mm-hmm. folks haven't seen it, it's a good piece of entertainment, Capricorn 1. Some of the older movies are, are, are better. And, uh, yeah, so- no question. Hey, by the way, uh, obviously you, you've met a lot of people, interviewed a lot of people. If you if you know people that you, now that you know how this show goes and what, what the conversation, how it goes, and that type of thing, if you if you feel like there's any that you know, any people that you know that would be a good match for the show, just drop me a line and. Uh, uh, thank you. I will absolutely do that. Um, okay. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. I'll give that some thought. But thank you for the invite. That's okay. Uh, let me do that. Yes. All right, Lionel. And how how'd you like how'd you like to format and how this show went for you tonight? I think it was good. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate being on it. Um, thank you for inviting me. I, um, you know, I'm I'm grateful. Um, I love meeting people like you, and I love you know talking to the people who listen to your show. You know, people with inquiring minds. The most important yeah. thing is to have an inquiring mind. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it's not about going to Walmart, right? It's about what lies <laughs> on the other side of the universe. That's what it's right. about. <laughs> right. I don't want to know what's on aisle five. Okay. I want to know what's in on Saturn five going on the rocket going to, to Pluto, man. That's what I want to know. Well, Alana Freiberg, I appreciate you. Freiberg, I appreciate you coming on the program. Can we have you on again sometime? I'd love to. Okay. I'd love that. All right, I'll have, I'll appreciate you coming on the show. I'll send you links when it's edited and uploaded. Thank you, Dan, and I will put it on my website to promote the show. I appreciate it. Uh, well, pre- get it out there. Yeah. I'll, I'll uh, thank that. you very much for having me on. I really do appreciate this. Right. And thanks for listening to all your listeners and your viewers. All right, all right we'll, we'll speak again. Yeah, take care. Great all day. the best. All right, bye-bye. God bless.